0: Kind of a special weekend for me. Uh, last night, my little brother Pete drove into town to spend 24 hours with me. He had business in Albuquerque and has to go up to Vegas, uh, and he decided to visit me for a day. And Kim's out of town, so it's just been my brother and I batching it, talking about life and spiritual things and what have you. Uh, Pete is five foot ten and about 190 pounds, and he's my little brother. And uh, we uh, still don't know what happened, but they tell us he really is my brother and. He's got an amazing story. About uh, 20 years ago, uh, Pete moved to Grand Rapids, Michigan. At that time, I was a pastor in Detroit. And as I mentioned before, we weren't raised in an evangelical Christian home. And when I became a Christian in the early 80s, my entire family thought I was nuts. I'd gone off the deep end, including my brother Pete. When Pete moved to Grand Rapids, he had little babies at home and, and his wife Lori. And so Kim and I got in our car one day, drove across the state to Grand Rapids, and decided we were going to take him to church. And so I had researched this, I found the best, biggest, you know, most thriving church in Grand Rapids, which, okay, you can figure that one out. And I, I, I took them there, and it was an absolute train wreck. Uh, from, from the moment we stepped in, he brought his little baby into the sanctuary, and an usher actually stopped us and said, no kids in the sanctuary. And, and so we had to take the baby to the, uh, the nursery, and it was just chaotic, and my brother looks at me and goes, I'm not, I'm not putting my kid in that nursery. And so then we had to stand behind this glass partition to watch the whole service, because that's the only place they allowed you to have a baby if you wanted to watch the service, and it just wasn't all that engaging of a service. And so we're sitting there in the parking lot, Kim and I are getting ready to go back to Detroit, and I said, hey, you know, I can can come back another weekend, and we can try to find another church. And he looks at me, and he says, I'll take it from here. (laughs) And so I drove back to Detroit, pretty discouraged and upset, and thought, well, you know, when all else fails, pray. (laughs) And so I just started to pray for him. About nine months later, Pete called me, and he said, it was a weird conversation, he said, did you know that dad doesn't believe in the resurrection? And I said, yeah, I'm pretty aware that dad doesn't believe in the resurrection. And I said, do you? He said, yeah, I think I do. And I said, tell me about it. And he said, well, I, this little church right down the road for me, I decided to start going to. And, 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 and they just had this Bible study, and I joined it. And for nine months, I've been studying the Bible. And I think Jesus is my Savior. And and it was an amazing moment that had nothing to do with me. It it had everything to do with God. And 20 years later, he's actually in town visiting me, but also his middle child, who is a freshman at Grand Canyon. He's raised three beautiful, semi-godly children and, and just done an amazing job. And it's just been so neat to watch him grow. He was in the last service hour here. And the reason that I, I tell you about, and by the way, he was in the last service hour. This is funny. I said, why are you coming at 745? And he said, well, I, got, I get direct TV on my computer and the Patriots are playing this morning. So I figure <laughs> some things never change. But anyways, um, the reason I tell you that story is because what I want to talk to you about today in our campuses and venues as they join us is this idea of why church exists to reach somebody like my little brother. I mean, I had written Peter notes ever since the day I got saved. I tried everything. I mean, I badgered the kid like crazy all through the 80s, and none of it worked. But what it took was a little church at that time called Ada Bible Church outside of Grand Rapids there that cared enough for someone like my little brother and would receive him in, in the mess that he was and journey with him in such a way to lead him to the point of faith. And ironically, that little Bible church that led my brother to the Lord now today has 7,000 people attending every week because they cared about somebody like my little brother. And that's what I want to talk to you guys about today. So let's bow. Campuses and venues, let's bow. And then we're going to go into our time in the word. God, this is a somewhat emotional weekend for me just being with Pete and how much I love him. And then Lord, realizing that you love him so much more than I ever could. And Lord, I'm grateful that you decided in your sovereignty to reach out to him and reach down to him and bring him and his lovely wife, Lori, and now their three kids into your kingdom, and to call them to yourself. God, you've done that for uh, many of us here today and at our campuses and venues. You've extended that same grace to us, and through your grace allowed us to receive Jesus. I pray that as we now talk about the lost ones, that are in our culture, in our spheres of influence today, that, God, you would speak to our hearts. More than anything, would you impassion us, break our hearts for the lost. And I pray this in Christ's name, amen. So, over the next three weeks, I'm going to talk to you about very, three very simple things. I'm going to talk to you about three different motivations that you and I can and should have that will do nothing but help us want to reach the lost around us. I'm going to talk to you about three reasons that God's Word, the Bible, gives us that we should care about those around us that don't know Jesus. And I'll give you the three up front, they're going to be on our website every week. Those three motivations are the love of God in Christ Jesus, the truth of God found in his word and then eternity, heaven and hell. And we're going to talk about those three motivations over the next three weeks and how love, truth, and eternity can and should motivate us to at the very least care about the world around us that so desperately needs Jesus. And I'm telling you where we're starting here today, this idea of the love of God in Christ Jesus, according to the Bible, is hands down the most rich, the most robust, and the most profound out of all three motivations. It is the foundation, the bedrock, and the heart of it all. Simply put, if you can get in touch with the love that God has for you, the love that has saved you and brought you to Jesus, then that should and can motivate you to care about those around you. And so let's read our scripture before us and see what all this is about. We're only going to look at three verses here today. 2 Corinthians chapter five, verses 14 to 16. A potent and power-packed set of verses. A set of verses couched in a New Testament book that is all about how to train your soul to feed off the things of God. And Paul the apostle is writing here. Let's remember he is inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is God's word. And yet he's considering in his own life what is the single most powerful motivator for him to get out of bed each day and care at all about the world around him. And he's going to use the, the plural to talk about us, but he's also applying it to his own life. And listen to what he says, first, 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 to 16. He says, For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer." Now, the obvious point of this passage, and it doesn't take a biblical scholar to see this, is that the love of God in Christ can and should be the primary driver in how you and I see all of life, including everyone and everything around us. That out of all the things that can drive us, wealth, money, fame, accolades, success, or even humanitarian motives like caring for the poor or or bettering the environment, or even a bunch of Christian motives like the fear of God, serving God, knowing God, all the things that we talk about around here. Paul's cutting through all of that stuff and saying as good and as fine as some of those motivations are in their own right, none of them comes close to the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So let's say it in principle form. And it's simply this that the love of God found in Jesus motivates like nothing else. That's what you need to hear today, gang. That many of you are motivated by lots of things in your spiritual lives, and that's good. But but I want you to cut through all of that today, everything that motivates you, and ask yourself Am I motivated the most by the love of God that's found in Christ Jesus? Yes or no. And if not, let me help you with that. Uh, Let's understand this passage rightly. When it says here that the love of Christ controls us, uh, that word control in the original Greek that the New Testament was written in literally means, now get this, control. I looked it up this week. That's what it means. Uh, the, The English Standard Version has it spot on here. This is actually a very interesting word. In the classical Greek that this word came from that influenced biblical Greek, uh, this word literally means to hold together. It's not just control in a generic sense. It's control in the sense that, 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 that the control is coming because things are held together in a way that allows focus to happen. So Philo, who was a great Greek Jewish philosopher in the first century, used this word to describe how rings can be held together in order to make a link to control something. You get that idea. He used this word to describe how salt back in that culture would help meat not spoil. It would hold together the meat. So the idea behind this word is that pressure in a good way is applied from something to something else, but pressure so that it holds something together to keep it whole, pure, and unspoiled. So now go back to verse 14. When Paul says that the love of Christ controls him, what he's saying is that the love of Christ provides that needed pressure in a good way in his life to keep him properly motivated and focused. Uh, So look at how the famous Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, eight volumes, talking about the history of every New Testament word or the major words, says it about this word in this verse. It says, to be claimed totally is the meaning of 2 Corinthians 5.14. It is the love of Christ which completely dominates Paul. And, And I love it. Out of all the things that Paul says could have motivated him got him out of bed each morning and caused him to view the world around him in a certain way, he's saying, it's the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus. It's what influences how I see others, how I respond to them, how I treat them. It colors the way that I look at all of life. And once you and I latch on to this about what he means when he says the love of Christ controls us, then the very obvious question becomes, well, how and why? I mean, what is it about the love of God, once you and I latch on to it, that can be a game changer in the way that we see life? And Paul goes on to tell us three things very quickly about why this love is so important. And the first thing he tells us is that Christ's love means or equals atonement, which is simply a $10 word for forgiveness. Look at what he says again in verse 14. You don't want to miss this. For the love of Christ controls us, why? Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, and therefore all have died. Now, this verse has actually caused some controversy over the years. Theologians bicker back and forth on exactly what it means when it says one has died for all, and therefore all has died. Let's start with the simple part of this. When it says that one has died, does anybody here know who that one is? Say it if you know. Who is it? Jesus. Good. Last night, I'm not kidding. I asked that and they were like really quiet. And so I teased them. I said, all of you need to go back to Sunday school because our kids know this one. The one is Jesus. But what does it mean when it says that the one died for all and therefore all died? Again, people have been arguing about what this means for years. I'm not going to give you all the options. I'm going to share with you what I believe this is saying here. And the best way to say it is that I think what Paul is getting at here in a semi-poetic way is that there is a universal offer to all of humanity, one died for all, but it does require a particular response. So universal offer with particular response. Let me show you. When he says one has died for all, I believe that that means that Jesus Christ really died on a cross for the sins of everybody to offer forgiveness to the whole world. It's what John would affirm when he says that he is the propitiation for our sins, but not just for our sins, but for the sins of the whole world. And and, and so when Jesus died, he died to offer salvation to everybody, which is why, by the way, when people say to me, and you've heard this too, you know, Christianity is so exclusive, you know, you guys say Jesus is the only way. I sit there and go, well, actually, uh, we're the most inclusive of them all, when you think about it, because only Jesus hung on a cross and said, come ye, come all, to anybody who wants to find forgiveness, He died for all. But when Paul sows on to say, therefore, all died, the way we have to read this based on other scriptures is, therefore, all have potentially died. And that's the particular response. Paul would say it this way in Romans 3, verse 25. He says that he is the propitiation for our sins through faith in his blood. So there is a required response if you're going to appropriate the offer that's been given to you by Christ, and that's you have to receive it. You have to trust in Jesus for eternal life. And yet, believe it or not, that's not the point of verse 14. I mean, we all bicker back and forth about what does this mean. What Paul's whole point is, is that when he thinks about this atonement, when he thinks about the fact that God has forgiven him of all of his sin, past present, and future, that was extremely motivating for him because he knew he had a colored past. He knew that he was a mess, and he knew that he was bound for a Christless eternity if something didn't happen. And God offered him atonement and forgiveness, and through faith in him, in Christ, he received it, and he's tracing it all back to God's love. Jeremiah would say the same thing when he would say in Lamentations 3, his mercies are new every morning. And Paul's saying every morning I can wake up and I can get out of bed and have a reason to live because of his love for me that has forgiven me of all my sin. And not just my sin, but he died for all. So all the people around me now have redemptive potential. I don't know which ones, I don't know who's gonna respond, but he died for them all, and so they all have a chance. That's what Paul's saying here. But notice he doesn't stop there. Second thing he says then is that the love of Christ means life here and now. Look at how he'll go on to say this in verse 15. He says, and he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. And so Christ's love gave Paul a reason to actually live this side of heaven. And yet what I find fascinating here is that if you're paying attention, he's living with a totally new direction and focus. Did you pick up on that? Because he says they no longer live for themselves but for him. So to put it in today's language, no longer was Paul me-centric... He was now theocentric or God-centric. And doesn't that preach to today's world? He, he said, I, I've gone from thinking about only me and, and, and what I can do and what my life can be about and only caring about the unholy trinity, me, myself, and I, to now caring about God and the things of God and what God would have for me and how God might want to use me to influence others. And so he's saying, I have a whole different view of life. And that brings him then to the third thing that he says here. And that's that Christ not only meant atonement, Christ's love did not only mean life, but Christ's love then led to an entirely different perspective on the world around him. Look at how he says this. This is so rich. He says, from now on, pause there, now that I understand Christ's love, Now that Christ's love has invaded my life through this atonement and through making me God-centered, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Now, pause right there. Uh, that word flesh has actually gotten a bad rap in the church today. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, everybody, anybody talks about the flesh, we talk about it negatively. Let, let me set that straight here. That's the Greek word sarx. And believe it or not, when the Greek word flesh is used in the New Testament, only about half the time, this will surprise some of you, is it used negatively. And it is used negatively in the Bible. It contrasts the flesh versus the spirit. Uh, it tells us that the flesh can be used to feed this sinful nature. And so it definitely is used negatively in the New Testament, but about half the times it's actually used more neutral. And here's why. Because all the word flesh means, I looked this one up too, is flesh. <laughs> it simply means the natural, bodily, human side of you. Anybody here today Human? well, you're flesh. You're made of flesh. And that's the way Paul is using it here. He's not saying that viewing others according to the flesh is necessarily bad, because we're all human, and we're going to view each other through human eyes and in human ways. He's simply saying, now watch this, that because of the love of Christ, he now has a different, higher better view of people because he's viewing them now through God's eyes and God's love for them and you're saying well how would that make a difference I I don't know if this is what Paul is getting at or not but as I was ruminating on this in my office this week I thought you know I was taught years ago by a wise pastor that there's a difference between viewing people from what we're going to call an ontological perspective versus an organizational perspective what do I mean by that Uh, Let's start with the easy one first, organizational. Uh, You and I have been taught ever since we were little guys and gals that we live in a world that's controlled by business, commerce, economy, society, and culture, and now politics. And in almost all of those disciplines, and this isn't, again, necessarily bad, we are trained to view people organizationally you're going to run a good business, you better know where to put people and how to get them productive and get them doing this and shuffling them over, over here and what have you. If you're in sales, you better know how to mobilize the right sales force and get people to do what you want them to do. Society people think like this. Academia thinks like this. It's all about, in many ways, a good way, organization. But if you're not careful, you can start to view people in that human fleshly way because the Bible hardly talks about any of that all the time. No, what the Bible talks about is that we need to view people ontologically. Uh, the word ontology simply means the study of existence or the study of being. So when you view somebody from an ontological standpoint, you're simply asking the question that in their essence, in their existence, in their being, who are they? And here's what the Bible answers about that. It's an amazing answer. The Bible says, well, first thing about who they are is that they are wonderful creations made in the image of God. Having incredible value created just a little lower than the angels. That's who everybody in this world are. But then the Bible gives us a little bit of bad news. And it says, uh, and and these wonderful creations are all like sheep who have gone astray each to his own way. And that's why their lives are so messed up. Because they've decided to, to rebel and go their own way. But then this ontological discussion isn't over. That then Jesus came, became our atonement. One has died for all. And he's offered every human being a chance at redemption. So watch this. Ontologically, every human being has redemptive potential. Again, we don't know which ones. Uh, We don't know who's closer, who's not, because people can fool us so easily. But ontologically, we view everybody around us as creations made in the image of God, wonderfully loved, fallen, and probably in desperate need of repair, but having great redemptive potential if they could understand Jesus and believe and trust and walk with him. Let me ask you, is that a very different way of seeing people than organizationally to you? I, the church struggles with this, it really does, especially a really large church like Scottsdale Bible. I am, I am challenged almost every week by somebody who comes into my office and wants me to view all of you organizationally. Eugene Peterson said it best in his book, The Pastor. He tells a story about how when he was a young pastor at a small Presbyterian church in Maryland back in the 50s, he had just gotten out of seminary in his, in his first couple of weeks in his office and a high-powered businessman walks into his little office there in Maryland and he's going to set him straight on how he needs to get this church back in shape. And 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 as he was talking, at one point he referred to the people of Eugene's church as resources that needed to be harnessed in order to go in this direction. And Peterson, in the wonderful way he writes, says, "You know, I just got a sem- I just got out of seminary, and I was taught that they were sheep who needed to be shepherded, not resources that needed to be harnessed." Do you see the difference? And again, I'm a big boy. I'd argue that to see people as resources that needed to be harnessed, there is a place for that. And if you run a business or do whatever, then that's probably gonna help your business go and grow. That's not wrong. But if you don't first see people from an ontological standpoint through the eyes of Jesus Christ, then you will not have a heart for them at the end of the day. You will only use them and shuffle them as they're so used to being handled that way in the world. God wants better for us and it begins with a new perspective. And so add all this up, guys. Christ's love and nothing else controls us. It holds us together emotionally and intellectually, keeping us focused and motivated. And it does this in three ways. It reminds us of the atonement and the forgiveness that we have in Jesus that he offers to the whole world. It gives us a new lease on life to wake up every day and say, I can walk with him. And then it gives us a new perspective on how to see others ontologically, not just organizationally. As I mentioned earlier, we're going to look at three different motivations over the next three weeks here. Love, truth, and eternity. But make no mistake, this is the foundation of them all. So one more question, and we're going to be done. And it's simply this. That outside of this being a really good theology lesson on God's love, and it has been, uh, why is it so relevant to you and me today? Why do you think it is? Why do you think that I have chosen uh, this weekend in September with all that's going on in our church right now to do this series and to begin with this lesson. To answer that question, I wanna tell you a story. It's a story of a church that many of us have grown to love over the years, and it's obviously the story of Scottsdale Bible. And I'm not gonna go back 53 years because that would be a long story. I am gonna go back 10 years ago to a time in our church that was a critical crossroads and fill some of you in on what happened here because many of you were not here at that time. Ten years ago, our church had, was being pastored by Dr. Daryl Del Hussein, who had had a 25-year amazing run as our pastor. When he got here in 1981, it was just a few hundred people that met ironically in this room uh, for worship. And over the next 25 years, the Lord would use Daryl to grow this church to, in 2005, to about 6,000 weekly attendees. And and that's an unprecedented kind of growth, even for a church in America. In 2005, Darrell was also the part-time president of Phoenix Seminary, and he was struggling with whether to give more time to the seminary or more time to the church And he announced in 2005 that he was going to go to the seminary and become the full-time president. He gave a wonderful illustration at that time that I have hung on to for years. He fondly likened the seminary at that time to a young, pimply-faced adolescent who needed his help growing up. And he likened Scottsdale Bible Church to a beautiful young woman who was ready to be handed off to the right suitor. And that's why he chose to go to the seminary. And so after giving him a Mini Cooper, which I thought was an amazing gift, the church began a two-year search for their next senior pastor. And a beautiful full-color brochure was drawn up, and a search team was struck, and the word got out nationwide that Scottsdale Bible, after a quarter of a century, was looking for a new pastor. And the word reached even a very small town outside of Cleveland, Ohio, called Chagrin Falls, to a no-name young pastor who was very happy pastoring his home church, but God was tapping on his shoulder that maybe he had something different for him, and the Lord was using his wife to say that to him. (laughs) And so in the spring and summer of 2007, now watch this, I spent 31 days here in Scottsdale in interviews over three different trips in which they asked every imaginable question you could ask of somebody. In fact, it got so bad at one point, and this I have documented, that Tim Kimmel of the search team wrote to the entire search team and said, I quote, we have done everything but give this poor guy a proctology exam. (laughs) And so based upon that recommendation, They decided to candidate me in August of 2007, and as we all know, I accepted, and I moved here with Kim and our three kids in October of 2007 to become part of the family here. But I got to tell you, this is where all the work started. Uh, The the statistics are actually very bad on a guy who dares to follow a guy like Daryl. In fact, in the vast majority of the cases, it doesn't work, and I'll tell you why. It's because the church needs to undergo something that nobody likes to talk about, and that is change. Will Rogers, the great humorist, once said it this way. He says, everybody's for progress. It's change they don't like. And we all knew that there were some needed changes here at our church, and I knew it, the elders knew it, you all knew it, and yet we were very afraid of it. But change was needed desperately or we were in trouble. Let me explain to you why. What was happening in the gospel Bible at that time was an all-too-common story that was happening to literally tens of thousands of churches across America, and still is. David Olson, in his groundbreaking book, The American Church in Crisis, describes it as the triple threat. Simply put, when a church approaches being 50 years old, and when the average age of a congregation is over 50, and if your pastor is over 50, they've been able to demonstrate that in 99.9% of the cases, the church begins a slow, almost impossible-to-reverse decline. And it looks like this. This is right out of Olson's book. In the first year of a church, when it's planted or started, like you would expect, if they're doing things right, it begins to grow, double-digit growth. And over the next decade, we see pretty good growth in the average church. But interestingly, around years 11 through 20, the growth is still there, but it's slowing down a little. And then in years 21 through 30, it's still growing, but it's marginally slowing down. And here's where it all changes. In years 31 to 40 it begins to level off, and in years 41 to 50, it begins the decline. And we've been able to empirically demonstrate that out of 328,000 Protestant churches in America, if something drastic is not done, this is the trajectory of a church when the triple threat of reaching 50 is upon them. And sure enough, as we look into the data back in 2008, and we kind of laughed at this, but it also scared us, uh, we realized in 2008 that Scottsdale Bible Church was 46 years old. The average age of our congregation, no offense, was very much over 50. And the new young pastor was turning 44. And the triple threat was upon us. And sure enough, when we looked at the statistics, Scottsdale Bible Church had been showing signs of a slow numerical decline that began somewhere around 2001. And I knew all of this coming in here, and I probably shouldn't have joked this way, but I thought it was funny. I joked with the congregation back in 08 that if we are not careful, we're about four to 5,000 funerals away from shutting our doors. Because all of us are, and that wasn't the worst one, by the way. I thought, the offensive one, I thought, was when I said, and we're about 300 funerals away from revival, which I still defend. I still defend that one, but that's for another sermon. But honestly, I mean, if a church, even as large as Scottsdale Bible Church, doesn't do something about the triple threat, give me a head nod that y'all understand this, we're in trouble. And then, very quickly, we had another challenge before us. And this one just, we have to understand this because it has everything to do with where we are today. And that's that as we looked at the days that Scottsdale Bible Church was growing in such a blessed way, the city of Scottsdale was also growing. In other words, a great part of our growth occurred because we were in a fast-growing demographic, which is how the way most megachurches in the 90s grew. You're in a fast-growing area. Scottsdale was a fast-growing area. And so much of our growth occurred then. But by 2008, we were in what we call a saturated demographic. In other words, within a five-mile radius of our church, there's not a lot of growth here. It's already pretty built up. So it's a different ballgame for us now. So let me tell you what we did. And I'm so glad he's here right now because Barry, one of our elders, is here. And this is a true story. Back in 2008, as we were realizing all this, we decided we were just going to hit our knees. Because honestly, we had no idea what to do. And Barry, who led us so well, because uh, right now my knees are actually hurting from just five seconds of being on this hard stage, Barry brought these wonderful pads to the elder meetings. And, and he'd come in every week with these prayer pads. And do you remember this, Barry? At the end of every elder meeting, we just hit our knees. And we would say, oh, God, help us know what to do, because we don't know what to do. And, and we want to handle change carefully and delicately here, but we want to be bold and Christ-centered. And for about a year or two, we just prayed, ouch, and, and, and did that. <laughs> Out of that, the Lord revealed to us something very striking about, of our, about our community. He revealed to us that, as much as um, we lived in a saturated demographic, now watch this, that only about 13 to 17% of our saturated demographic was going to church on any given Sunday. Some of you have lived here all your life, and so that doesn't surprise you. I gotta tell you, I come from the Midwest. And, and that was not only news to me, but it was offensive to me. In my hometown this morning, Chagrin Falls, a town of about 5,000 people, about half the town is in church today, this morning. I'm not saying half the town is saved, because I know many of them, but they're at least in church, <laughs> and, and they're going to church Kim and I uh, hit out in a small town in Michigan this summer for about 30 days. It's a town of 950 people, and they have seven churches in this town. And every Sunday, every parking lot was filled. That's the world I grew up in. That's the way it is still in the Midwest in many places. It's certainly that way in the South. This is a different town. I, I drive to church here now on Sundays, and I stopped and got my Starbucks this morning, and it's just packed with people reading the paper and they're in their jogging outfits or tennis outfits or biking outfits and I'm thinking to myself, they're not doing all this before church. They're doing this instead of church. And the Lord showed us to that and you know what Jesus says about that and this is the vision God gave us back in 08, the fields are ripe for harvest. What an opportunity you have. And we decided back then, now this is very important for you to hear, that... (laughs) That as we continue to worship the way we do, as we continue to teach the word of God unashamedly, as we continue to disciple people through small groups and service, as we do all the things that we do well, could we posture ourselves toward our community and impassion our hearts for the lost? That's the vision that we started to get way back in 2008. And some of you remember this, we actually changed our mission statement. Our mission statement back then, it was a wonderful mission statement was come, grow, go. Uh, but it hit me in a moment of clarity that, the, that that mission statement puts the onus on them. They come, they grow, they go. And as far as I understand the Bible, it ain't on them. It's on us. Paul says, I become all things to all people that I may win as many as possible. So we subtly changed our mission statement to win, build, send. That it's our job, empowered by the Spirit, to win people to faith in Christ, build them up in their faith through all the things that we do here, and then send them back out into the culture that we all live in, our spheres of influence, to be winners and builders ourselves. Say it with me, three words win, build, send. Again, win, build, send. That's our mission. It's the Great Commission, and I believe it with every fiber in my being. And so for four years, from 2008 to 2012, we just did a bunch of preparatory work. (laughs) We tried to right the ship by making a lot of internal changes. We then spent a year in 2011 focusing on grace And then we did something very subtle but fun in the year 2012. We celebrated 50 years as a church. And, and, you know, it was really hard for me not to tell you guys about the triple threat back in 2012. But that would have been a real downer, right? I mean, hey, we're celebrating 50 years and a potential decline. Isn't that great? (laughs) That would not have gone over well. And so I didn't mention boo to you guys about the triple threat, even though all the elders knew it. We simply honored our past. We brought every pastor back and loved on them and thanked them for for how God used them and we celebrated all the stories of what God has done. And then we did this. We gave you a little bit of a sneak peek that year to what could be. And then in January of 2012, my wife describes it this way. She says, we unleashed the beast. Not the beast of revelation. Don't hearing me say that. We unleashed the beast of a vision that could very potentially change the fabric of Scottsdale Bible Church in a really God-honoring way. We called it Compelled by Grace. Simply put, we wanted to enter into a campaign to raise money, but more importantly, to change our hearts in order to posture ourselves to reach the lost, to impact the world, and to leave a legacy for years to come with our kids Bill Hybels once said that the worst thing you can do for your children and grandchildren is hand off a broken baton to them. And we vowed back in 2012 that we were not going to hand off a broken baton in this church to our kids and grandkids, that we were going to bless them with a ministry structure and even a facility that they could use for years to come. And I've never been more proud over the last three years of God's people We're right on track with our our giving campaign and the buildings have gone up. The multi-sites have gone in, Cactus and Mountain Valley. We've set aside significant funds for future church planting. We've increased our missions. Everything that we set out to do has been done. We now have a campus here just on Shea that when we get back into our worship center here in six weeks, we will now have capacity for just shy of 3,000 adults on this campus every worship hour. And then when you add in multi-sites with Mountain Valley and Cactus, we actually have increased capacity for almost an additional 1,000 every hour. We can literally double the size of this church without any more money, any more necessary things, save for maybe a few staff, given our Compelled by Grace campaign. But there is one thing that could sabotage this whole thing. Do you know what it is? If you and I don't care. If we become the kind of Christians, and there's many of them in the United States right now, that only care about their place in the pew, that only care about their Bible study, that only care about their retirement, that only care about their family and that their family's doing okay with God, which are all important things, if we do not care about the lost ones around us, then everything we have done for Compelled by Grace, except maybe handing it off to our kids, is for naughts. Because we have done this in order to be the kind of church that cares about the lost in this community. And it all begins with you asking yourself the question, has the love of God invaded my life enough? Has it overflowed in my life enough that I care enough about those around me? Five years ago, we took an elder retreat, and I I was under the firm conviction that if we couldn't get the elders on board with this, then none of it was gonna happen. (laughs) Speed of the leader, speed of the team. So we went up to Flagstaff, it was hot here, and we spent 24 hours talking about only the lost, and at one point at the retreat, I asked the elders a question that I think is a $10 question in all of this. I said, when was the last time you ever shed a tear over a lost person bound for a crisis eternity? Have you ever wept over a lost person who doesn't know Jesus? Because these are pretty hardened men, not like hardened, in the they're tough men, but I know that at some point every one of them cries over something. Maybe a a child or a grandchild that's really hurting, or maybe financial difficulty, or maybe just a past emotional pain. Every man has a breaking point. Have you ever wept over a lost person? And and that really struck our board because they all came back here committed to the lost. It particularly struck a few of them and and, and made drastic changes in their life, more more so in their perspective as a result. I'm going to let one couple tell you their story right now. It's Jeff and Tracy Goebel. And let's hear in their words what happened to them five years ago and the difference it's made in their life now. And then we'll wrap all this up.
1: Well, in the fall of twenty ten, on a one day retreat, Jamie asked a question how we might stimulate our congregation. A real broken heart for lost people and a real intentionality that we as a church could develop toward lost people in our community and i was really struck by that i clearly wasn't broken hearted like jesus was over lost people in the aftermath of that retreat And I came home and I really shared with Tracy that we need to begin praying for revival through Scottsdale Bible Church into our community. Look, I'm an introvert, so by nature, I'm not the gregarious person reaching out. To me, the change was I had to learn how to love relationally. He would reprioritize for the people in our life that we knew that we were called to love. We've become much more intentional about the people around us in our lives. And it might be a server at a restaurant, it might be a barista, and it might be a dear friend who doesn't know Jesus. People are all attracted to the love of Christ, and sharing Jesus with people doesn't have to be scary and intimidating. We can love them the way Jesus loves us, and then we have found opportunities to speak God's truth in their lives, to come around them in times when they're hurting, and to be there when they want to meet Jesus. One of my favorite verses says it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Well, what's my job? My job is to go show the kindness of Christ. There's a couple in our lives that we love dearly and their values and their lifestyle are anything but Christ-like. And one day they asked us, you know, we know who you are as Christians. We know what you stand for. Why do you love us? Because they're used to not being loved by Christians. and. The answer is we love people the way Jesus loves people. It's through love that people respond the best to the gospel. I watch people around me who suffer in their souls in ways that is completely needless. And the only reason they're suffering the way they are is they don't have Jesus. I pray that my desire and interest in loving the people around me with the love of Jesus grows day by day and increasingly, as time goes on, in the future.
0: About a year, yeah, you can clap at that. (laughs) About a year after that um, experience with Jeff and Tracy, um, they were uh, in a parking lot here in Scottsdale, uh, talking with a couple that they had been journeying with in just a, a slightly different way, a slightly more intentional way. And, and they got an incredible joy to pray with that couple right in a parking lot to receive Jesus Christ as Savior. And, and, and these two dear people are not natural evangelists. I don't think they have the gift of evangelism. As Jeff said, he's not a real extrovert of people. I'm not sure he really even likes people half the time. And so, you know, and some of you can resonate with that. But his heart is attuned to the love of Jesus, and and therefore his heart is attuned to a hurting world, And, and all it took was a little bit more intentionality for God to use this dear couple in a heightened way. Here's what I want you to do as we wrap this up here today, in venues and campuses, I want you to do this too. I'd like you all to pull out your loved one brochure. Uh, we've put together, because every one of our staff is on board with this, every one of our elders is, is jazzed up about this, we've put together a little bit of a roadmap for you that we're calling our Love One Journey. And I only have two homework assignments for you this week, and they're really easy. The first one is, I want you this week, if you haven't done so already, to prayerfully think about one person in your sphere of influence, or maybe two or three, but at least one, who doesn't know the Lord, whom already is in your sphere of influence, you don't have to manufacture anything, and get that person in your mind and begin praying that that relationship could turn into a redemptive journey between you and them. That in a very natural, organic, relational way, that the Lord might begin to use you to journey with them toward a desired end for them to, at the very least, be introduced to Jesus, whether they accept him or not, is not up to you. It's only up to God. Uh, But we're asking all of us to love one in this church over the next few months in such a way that it would point them to Jesus Christ. And though that's daunting for some of you, like you're going, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could do that. We're going to help you learn to do that. It's really not hard. Honestly, we've called this love one for a reason. All we're asking you to do is love. And as you're going to see, love does involve sharing truth. Love does involve journeying with people. At times, love does involve even taking some risks. I mean, that's all a part of love, but it's all love. God's done that for you. We're asking you now to do that with at least one person in your sphere of influence. And then the second thing I'm going to ask you to do, as you think of that name, is read this this week. (laughs) Uh, This uh, roadmap that we've given you here is all about how we're going to begin with prayer And Neil mentioned that earlier and hopefully mentioned it in the venues and multi-sites. It talks about how we're going to take over our small groups for two months and have our small groups talk about this and pray about this. It's going to talk about how we're going to provide further training for you if you're really afraid and don't know how to do this. It talks about how we're going to offer events. That's a big one, by the way. You know, when I ask people, why don't you bring so-and-so to church? They seem to have a spiritual interest. Well, now they might get turned off. And I said, really, really? Well, we're not all that turn But if you think that's true, then why don't you come to one of our low-cringe events that we have here on a regular basis? I mean, if you really think I'm going to offend them, then invite them to an event I'm not at, and I'd be happy to, to do that. And, and we're we giving you a list of all those events, and I'm telling you, are like no fail, and, and then it all caps off with our Winter Wonder, which is our biggest event of the year, and, and that's one where we do present the gospel and give people a chance to receive Jesus. And and so you're going to read about all that in here and the opportunities you have to be involved in your church in a different way, in a wonderful way, over the next couple of months. Last word. I'm praying for all of you. I am. And I'm praying that you have a tender heart toward God and the things of his spirit, mostly to the people around you, and that he might use you. I, I came into this whole season about eight months ago after a lot of work with the Lord on where he wanted to take our church and I shared with the staff and they didn't bite on this motto but it's been meaningful to me. I said, here's the vision I have for Scottsdale Bible Church as we culminate compelled by grace and that is that we exist in great part for God, because it's his church, to use us to reach them. That's why we're here. For God to use us to reach them. And I got great belief in all of you and in God's work through you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for what you're doing in and through this expression of your church, this local church called Scottsdale Bible. And I thank you, God, for your word that page after page reminds us, it screams to us of your grace and your love, your truth, and all that you've given us in your son Christ. And, Lord, I do pray that each one of us would be controlled by the love of Christ, that it would be such a real thing for us, and if it's not, may we ask you for it, God, we'd be controlled in such a way that we would know the forgiveness we have, we would know the new lease on life that is ours, and that, God, we would see others from a different perspective. Help us to do that, God. And, Lord, as we take a risk to love one in our lives, uh, to, to have a redemptive journey relationship with those around us, would you bless that, Uh, Would you, as Lewis said so well years ago, would you surprise us with joy uh, uh, when we take a risk to love in that way? And I pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, Amen. amen. God bless you guys. Have a great day.